0: Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am
1: doing well, Sarah. And yourself?
0: Not too bad been awful rainy the last few days
1: yeah we went from really dry to a wet july which is unusual around here
0: it is my all my veggies are really happy though so
1: yeah my yard's happy it's almost too happy i have to mow (laughs) it too often now
0: (laughs) well in you know in six months we'll be complaining about the cold so
1: it's always something right there we are yeah right right so um this is season two right
0: we are. We are in season two. This is episode four of season two of Dirty Drinks. So I, gosh, we're pushing like 70 episodes now.
1: That's crazy. How did we get that high?
0: I don't know. People must like listening to you talk.
1: Well, probably you. You're the, you're the whole <laughs> thing behind the operation. I just show up and talk to people. I don't have to do anything else. I got the <laughs> easiest job ever.
0: I don't know about that.
1: Oh, it's completely but... true. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't even know how to hit the record button on this Zoom session. So, without you, this would not be happening.
0: It's a good thing I have some technical skills, I suppose. (laughs) Sometimes that gets me in trouble, though. I get voluntold to do things. So,
1: yeah, you get invited to like different states to record things and everything else. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of a a fun thing. The state of Minnesota invited us to go up to their APIC state meeting in september unfortunately both rick and i were off on vacation during that week but um i just want to throw a shout out to the state of minnesota apic chapter thank you for reaching out to us we are planning on getting you guys on the show at some point to talk about what's going on in minnesota
1: yeah and we'll have to do it another time when it works out yeah yeah and and any other state we haven't been to yet which is pretty much 49 of them would be great to invite (laughs) us
0: Absolutely. We're going to take this show on the road. We've been saying that we're going to get a party bus and take the show on the road.
1: Like a Scooby-Doo van. We need the mystery machine. Yeah. (laughs) So what do we have going on today?
0: So today we have a a super awesome guest. I'm really excited to have him here. I first heard him speak two years ago at the OSEP annual conference. And we um, got to chat with him at OSAP Boot Camp this spring and listen to him speak again at OSAP Annual Conference just a couple months ago. Um, today, we have Dr. David Resnick, who is the director of the Oral Health Center and Infectious Disease Program at Grady Health Center, the president of the HIV Dental Alliance, and the board president of the AIDS Institute. So wearing a lot of hats, I'm sure I probably missed something that you're doing, but thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Dr. Resnick.
2: Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, here it's just foggy. We've got that the the, uh, the uh, fog coming in, all the the stuff from Canada coming down here. So it looks like it's partly cloudy when it's probably sunny. Then we've had tons of rain, so yeah. our, our vegetables are good, but it's been hot incredibly hot this year
0: yeah and you're down in Atlanta right
2: down in Atlanta where I started a dental practice a really long time ago next year (laughs) is the 40th anniversary of my graduating class from Emory School of Dentistry oh nice I can't believe it yeah that's, that's I can't believe it's been that long It's been a remarkable career. I've hit almost every aspect of it at this point and looking forward to what challenges lie ahead. And there always are challenges that lie ahead.
0: (laughs) So with you being in practice for 40 years, you've seen a lot of changes as far as infection control goes in the dental practice. (laughs) That's
2: to say the very least. We only wore gloves for periodontal surgery and oral surgery. So everything else was actually sticking your hands into somebody's mouth, the thought of which actually sort of horrifies me that we didn't have this stuff and that I didn't get her herpetic whitlow. That was good. I didn't get any other kind of diseases. That is good. But I mean, it's sort of horrifying that it took the HIV pandemic or epidemic, depending on your perspective, for people to start taking infection control seriously in dental studies. So so now we've we've taken that up even another notch because of issues with airborne transmission. So it's good to see the profession not just waiting any longer, being a little bit more proactive about what we have to do so we can provide the safest dental visit. But there have been a lot of changes. I mean, the materials have changed. We don't use amalgam much anymore. We, We used to have to hand mix our composites and basically had three minutes to get those two colored materials in the tooth. Um, and as a student, that was always a challenge. Um, so things have greatly changed. And the importance of medical dental integration is a huge, huge component of what we do now.
1: So going back 39 years when you graduated, um, did you what, what did you think you were going to be doing when you got through dental school? And then how did you end up where you are now?
2: So my goal, honestly, I went to work with my brother. He is 10 years older and skipped first grade. He had a practice in a very ritzy part of Atlanta, Buckhead. So my goal was to be a rich, partying, long-haired dentist in 1984, 85. And that did last six to 12 months. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That didn't sort of work out. Um it wasn't that my brother and I we got along great, but what happened was um I had a lot of patients, a lot of diverse patients that were coming to my practice, whether it depended on insurance type or depended on um who I may have advertised to. And at that point, we thought HIV was something that was in Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco. I learned nothing about it in dental school. I learned some things about it in some bar magazines but I really hadn't learned much about it. And so what ended up happening was I got a phone call from a patient one day and my mom was my front desk and she said the patient was really angry and I needed to take the phone call. He had had his teeth cleaned every six months since he could remember, but since his diagnosis with HIV, no one would touch him. Well, I had no idea what to do, but I wasn't gonna turn him away So we scheduled, I did everything wrong. I'm going to admit it. My first patient scheduled them at the end of the day, bleached off everything I could, and then made it my business to learn. Then word got out that I would see the HIV patient population. And so I started getting phone calls from people. One was aid Atlanta. Would I take their patients on a sliding fee schedule? Well, my mom was my front desk and she didn't know how to do a sliding fee schedule. And well, I didn't know how to do a sliding fee schedule and we weren't about to tell my brother we were instituting a sliding fee schedule. <laughs> so we thought we'd do a few cases for free. About six months later, Grady called. Would you take our patients on a sliding fee schedule? Oh, sure, why not? By 88, half of my patients didn't have a payer source. And so I was working close to 60 hours a week Um, to make ends somehow meet, but not really. They really didn't meet. This was a losing (laughs) proposition. And so I'm one of the few people that has ever gone to an ACT UP meeting and yelled at them that they needed to put some of their effort around oral health because we were seeing things showing up in these people's mouths that we had never really seen much of before. Everybody had something in those days. Whether it was candidiasis or thrush or Kaposi sarcoma or these non-healing ulcers, everybody had something. And then um, during that period of time, I had a patient I couldn't fix that uh, had a good paying job, good insurance, um, was had spontaneous bleeding. And I got his labs. I talked to a physician friend of mine. And nothing worked. And I had read, now you have to remember, that was before the internet, before cell phones, before instant everything. And so I had read a book by uh, doctors John and Deborah Greenspan from UCSF. I don't know why I decided to call John, but I picked up the phone, the long-haired parting dentist, and I called up John Greenspan, got his executive secretary, left a message, and the man called me back. And he told me what to do. And that was the beginning of a lifelong mentorship. Regretfully, Dr. Greenspan did pass away recently. Um, so HIV Dent, which is HIVDent.org, which is my nonprofit, we're still featuring John because he told me the importance of sharing lessons learned. Because what he told me to do on this patient actually worked. And then when I started my realizing that I was in this was a financial position that wasn't going to last. There's no way you can have happier pra- practice um, be patients that don't have a payer source that are medically complex. I started hitting up every organization in town that saw people with HIV. So it was Aid Atlanta. It was Grady. I'll never forget Aid Atlanta would put me on hold knowing that I couldn't stay on hold very long because I had so many patients. And then I never got through to the ED. So I sent her a fax. This is how long ago it was, (laughs) questioning her dedication to the people with HIV. She called me back. She ended up being one of President Clinton's uh, AIDSars, by the way, head of the Office of National AIDS Policy. But she couldn't do anything. And then Ryan White was passed in 1990, the Ryan White Care Act, and then funded in 1991. And um, at that point, I was literally busted. And so I started getting $50 per patient when I would see them. And that $50 made a lot of difference. I mean, it might be a, a $400 root canal I was doing, but it was still something was coming in. And I got on Emory's faculty, uh, in Department of Community Medicine, and then plans were to bring me into grading. Well, the first plans in 89 didn't quite come through because oral surgery clinic was too busy. And so we had to wait until there was a building and we went to the. I actually became friends with the real estate person because I, you know, I'd the dental park go. You know, you have to get yourself in. I had all sorts of letters of support to get Grady to let me go in. Um, it was during a Gulf, Gulf storm. Mm-hmm. And so the chief dental officer at of the CDC was gone, but I got the head of minority health, Dr. Reuben Warren, who is a dentist. And he wrote a letter of support. I had letters from John Lewis. I had letters from my senators. I literally, well, I was a political science major in college and I was gonna figure out a way to make this work. And finally in 1993, right after July 4th, I was able to start at Grady Health System. We started with four chairs, uh, me as an assistant, a front desk person, and office manager. That was it. We saw 1,400 patients our first year. Um, I will say that that was not healthy. I've had a few surgeries since then to put me back together. But then it went into an 8 chair clinic, and now I'm in this 12-chair, state-of-the-art, three-room suite, infection control area, negative pressure room in case something worse than COVID comes around. Every safety precaution I could take, started a residency program with NYU Langone. Um, we have our residents that spend time between here and a free clinic that's just down the street. Um, I have had just one of the most remarkably blessed careers that you could ever imagine. Um, it started because I was raised that you just don't discriminate against people and people were being discriminative based on an illness. At that point, you know, the risk factors were uh, injection drug use, uh, being uh, gay or bisexual, and being Haitian. And so there were a lot of people that had to call their parents and say, never guess what, mom, I'm Haitian, because they didn't want to come out. I mean, the things that were happening to people um, in this building, that I would have people crying in my dental chair, not based on um, dental pain. But based on the fact they've been thrown out of their home, they were thrown out of their jobs, they would used up all their insurance, they didn't know what to do. And luckily for me, mental health was right down the hall and I'm fast. And so I would be able to get them to the service they needed and make sure they were worked back into my schedule so they wouldn't have missed it. So it was, a, it was going from what would be a really terrible time in the AIDS epidemic in the United States to where we are now, where If we get the funding that we need, that's a little questionable today, but if we get the funding that we need, it looks like we can meet our goals of 90-90-90. So we can get 90% of the people to know their status, 90% in care, and 90% on antiretroviral therapy. We have pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, and we have U equals U. If you're undetectable, it's untransmissible. So there's never been a documented case of a dental healthcare worker ever seroconverting after an exposure in the dental setting. And I've been here long enough. They put me on, uh, they didn't know what to do with me at Grady because I'm the first <laughs> Grady doctor, not Emory or Morehouse. And you might tell I'm a little bit unusual. Uh, And so actually, I report to the chief medical officer. (laughs) And I have been on the the, um, medical executive committee for 23 years, the research oversight committee, the credentialing committee. I think they committed me to death. But um, (laughs) it's truly been an honor to start off as one of four and then to grow it to a staff of 21 residents coming in and learning from us and then coming back to help provide care. And that's even more special because, well, you know, I'm getting a little long in the tooth, so to speak. And there have to be people that are really able to carry on this remarkable tradition here. Not that I'm going anywhere soon. I just try (laughs) a little bit more now.
1: Now, when you started this, um, was there other programs that were similar in the United States back in the the 80s? And then how has that grown you know, in other places, what you've learned, you said, you know, one of the things you've learned is to give back. And so to people, you know, like the residents that you train or whatever, do they go off to other cities, you know, and, and set up a similar type program, et cetera.
2: There were other programs in the eighties, I was the only dentist in Atlanta that would treat the patient population. So that was one of the issues. And I felt like I was on an Island um, but there were universities. Actually, that's where the work was happening was in dental schools. So uh, the Greenspans at UCSF, um, Michael Glick at Penn, um, Steve Abel at uh, he was a private practice periodontist, and then I think he he's now an associate dean at um, SUNY Buffalo. So you had, and then Helene Bednar set up this incredible program in Boston set up a private practice. But no, what I wanted to do when I started HIV Dent or the HIV Dental Alliance was facilitate for other places to not have to go through my five years of hell. So my grant applications were online. I did technical assistance in several states and several cities, helping them get programs started. I even helped set up the standards of care for San Francisco's HIV oral health care. So worked with Uh, So it was like being on an island, and then it became, how can I help others? And that became my huge, true mission. And so I've not only provided technical assistance in the United States, um, when we were getting along with Russia, I I did uh, technical assistance to Moscow University of Medicine and Dentistry. Um, head up their postgraduate dental education on HIV. We had a conference in Beijing. I have been in India, uh, Cuba, which is the first country in the world to eliminate mother-to-child transmission of HIV. Uh, Canada, uh, which is bringing all the smoke in. I'm not sure about that (laughs) right now. But um, outside of that, I have really been a lot of places. I've been to South Africa, Um, I've been to Lesotho. When I say it's been a blessed career, Um, Yeah, I get to help people, but that's sort of my nature. But it's just what I do, and it's what makes me feel good, I guess. I love doing it. it. It's the passion that drives me to take on new things. Like I was the HIV dentist, then I became the COVID dentist. In March of 23, I started a webinar series that was March 23rd of 2020. I started a webinar series that was weekly then it went to bi-weekly, then it's monthly. It's still going on. Now, it's not necessarily on COVID right now, but it's on medical issues impacting dentistry. Um, so teaching is a passion. Um, entertaining is a bit of a passion, um, as, as what a host might have witnessed recently, uh, give me a microphone and a big stage and it's going to be a show. So, and, <laughs> but, it, but I think teaching is sort of, you don't have to be serious. I don't take myself all that seriously. Um, I take my. I think it's been blessed, is how I've said it before. I mean, I've had great opportunities, and some I may have forced. Others have shown up. Um, you know, I, I learned about a, a new issue with a TV that's coming out lately that we probably won't talk about today. But it was just a happenstance that I was leaving the building. When one of our ID physicians was coming into the building and she works for the CDC TB division. So, you know, some of it is divine intervention. Some of it, you make your own path and, but it, all of it has been um, a remarkable experience. I mean, I don't know that anybody could love their job as much as I do. And I don't even know what my job is anymore And I say that.
0: That is such an amazing story. Um, you know, I, I said earlier, I heard you speak at OSAP, but you didn't get into the whole background of everything that you've gone through to get where you're at. And, you know, the first time I, I um, heard you speak and kind of figured out what you have going on, I was like, this is so cool. We need to, like, I would love to learn more about it. Your um, attitude toward health equity is fantastic. I think that that in itself should be something that people take away from this podcast, hopefully, um.
2: <laughs> I would <laughs> hope so. We've had, and the reason you know, being in my office is is my least favorite time of the day. Well, not not talking to y'all. now that's not that's not where I'm going. But it's seeing the patients. Whether I'm in the waiting room with them, whether I'm in the operatories with them, I make it my business to say hello to everybody. Um, because the way I look at it is if you're a patient here, you're one of my patients. So whenever I hear the term, well, I can't do that, it's not my patient, it's like, no, you are my patient. They're your patients, they're my patients. So it, it's just been, I don't know how else to word it, and it's been fun. I mean, at the beginning, it was not fun. They did not train dentists on death and dying, and we would lose close to, the program now sees over 6,000 patients. We, do, we offer all services under one roof. So we're one of the most comprehensive programs for people with advanced HIV. You used to have an AIDS diagnosis to come and see us. Now, if you're diagnosed at any grady facility, you can come. So that has actually helped with the complexity a little bit. And of course, the medications have made it a whole lot easier. So I, I say I'm an expert in HIV dental care. What does that mean? Oh, I know how to do dentistry. And really, that's what it's come down to, but that's because of stigma with the targeted populations um I never could understand that. I didn't feel that I can't, since we're talking about health equity, I am a gay man I've uh, been with the same partner for twenty eight years, got married, and my aunt and uncle were our uh witnesses and <laughs> they owned a condo in Maui. It wasn't a bad place um uh, <laughs> The judge, we didn't do the big thing. The judge was fabulous. Um, We had been together so long when we got married, it was like, no big deal. And then when it came to uh, sickness and in health, both of us got a little teary. So I just didn't understand. And I have to also say my mother's family uh, survived the Holocaust. Some of them survived the Holocaust. Most of them did not. And so... I really, truly was raised that being bigoted towards anybody was just wrong. And so um, I had a second. My, my father passed away when I was 14. There was a person who was a housekeeper. I went until I was six. She became the first she was a medical secretary for the first African American surgeon in Tampa, and then she went to nursing school. She was my second mom because when my mom got remarried and wasn't there all the time, Nina was the other mom. So at my high school graduation, and I went to a Jesuit school, I had Nina and my mom there, um, and they went off to this fabulous restaurant after graduation. And I don't remember what I did because I was graduating high school, um, but it was—it's been a remarkable existence and remarkable my next-door neighbors were spanish um he was from um his family was from spain she was from colombia and when the oldest daughter brought home a fiance from cuba mrs gonzalez's scream ran in my in my own home for like (laughs) 10 years and I had no idea that there were the differences in the, You know, I learned in a very young age that just because you might look alike or might sound alike, you're not alike. There's so many differences. And, and to enjoy those differences. Our society has gotten to where there's more disagreement when we all actually agree on probably 80% of everything, if not more. But we're spending too much time disagreeing on stuff as opposed to, yes, we both agree that we need to help Canon and get this darn fog out of our <laughs> smoke out of our stuff. Or we need to you know, take certain issues more seriously and focus on things we can get done. And um, so that's why focusing here is a multidisciplinary care program. They don't treat me differently that I'm a dentist. Actually, because I've been here so long, they treat me differently because I've been here since the opening of the program. There are about five of us left at this point. Um, that including a nurse assistant, including one of my staff, my chief of staff, uh, the office manager, we worked together in Buckhead. She was my general assistant. So I mean, continuity has been great. I always thought the staff stayed because I traveled so much and that way I couldn't get on their nerves too much. I was working <laughs> the plane. And then COVID hit and I was sort of stuck home, but then I had to have some surgeries and I figured they were staying because of that. And then there were no more surgeons, they're still here. I, I I think, I don't know, it seems to work. Terrific. I think, that, I think and part of it is a song from um, my my favorite artist, um, what well, I told you, Diane Rashi is coming to Omaha, a little plug in there, um, but that if you see a person on the street and they're down, remember, their shoes could fit your feet. That's from Reach Out and Touch, and that is my favorite song. And Mm -hmm. I actually believe those words. It could have been me. I could have been one of those people. Mm -hmm. Um, Luckily, I look like this and I'm a a nerd. And so that didn't happen. But I mean, (laughs) under different circumstances, things did happen and it could have been me. And so for the grace of God, it happened to others. I lost a lot of friends, almost all of them. Um, And that was more passion. And so I have my three P's. A passion, persistence, because boy, do you need that if you want to get something done, and patience, not meaning the people that we serve, but what's in here. I'm still working on the third one. I think I'll be working on this. I'll get to those pearly gates and say, what's the delay? I mean, it's just (laughs) my nature. Hopefully, I'm going to the pearly gates. I I don't know about that. Although, I do like warm weather.
1: (laughs) Going back in time a little bit, um, looking at kind of the evolution of PPE and dentistry, uh, you know, we talked earlier off the screen, you you were doing stuff, you know, without any kind of protection on. How did that kind of, you know, get get incorporated into your practice and then into dentistry in general? And how how far do we still have to go in that regard?
2: Well, that is actually a great question. I just, I'm on the Georgia Board of Dentistry as well. And I just started their first infection control committee, which was a bit surprising. Um, So we do have an infection control committee. We do have a checklist now that the investigators go out and do. I help put together for them. Um, What would I say? I would say that we're still, we do a much better job. I do believe that most dental visits are safe. I think there are things that need to be focused on like dental unit water lines that are still a problem. I think air quality is a huge problem. I have everything that I put in place during the heart of COVID is still in place and it will not change. I have for my big rooms, I have these big things called virus killers. I, every room has the extra oral evacuation system and a portable HEPA filtration system that does put out hydrogen peroxide. Um, I have a three-room infection control suite, and so do I think I set up a program for another organization in town, and they only have a two-room infection control suite. Um, we want to save a little space there, but I think that there's work that needs to continue. Um, you know, monitoring water lines I think is important. Air quality, you know, airborne transmission was not something dentistry was worried with, and so all of a sudden, you know. Do we get fit tested for the appropriate N95s? I mean, if you switch a brand of N95, you have to truly get Fit tested for the new brand. And a lot of people don't know that. So they'll get them wherever they can, or they'll, when they were reprocessing them, it was making me crazy because they were writing their names on the N95. Well, that also hurts its integrity. And so we're still N95ing for aerosolized procedures. Do I think? that other offices are, I don't know. I don't go out and do those investigations. I did review one recently and wasn't happy. Um, So I think that there are areas to improve, but we've gone from hands in the mouth, no mask, no nothing, stuff splattering all over our faces, to which was sort of horrifying, stuff getting in my hair, or horrifying, um, to where now, I think for the most part, we're pretty good on PPE. Uh, I think the improvements have been performed. I think we have our disposables. I think we have lab coat services when people take advantage of them. Um, there was a, a time where we were running into shortages, as you're well aware, during the heart of COVID of N95s and things of that sort. But I have not changed any of my protocols. Do we? Ask, if somebody has a fever, we're going to figure out what the fever, we're not going to turn people away here. They could have a fever due to a dental abscess. So we're not doing the screening before they come into the building any longer, but the chair side proceeds. So you can be in my waiting room and not have a mask. You can go into Grady Hospital and not have on a mask. But if you're in our acute care center, which does chemotherapy, you have to have a mask. If you're in the actual clinic part of my facility, my my floor, then you have to have on uh, N95 or some kind of masking. And we have face shields, we don't double glove for any reason um, or anything of that sort. We know about post-exposure prophylaxis, but my goal during COVID was to ensure the safety of my staff and my patients. And that's the lesson that I basically preach when I'm on the road these days. So it's that's so. I think we have a way to go. I don't think everybody goes to OSAP. I think everybody should go to OSAP because whether it's a boot camp which I went to my first boot camp. That's what we had time to sit and talk. I'd never been to boot camp. I'm a board member of the association. I'm a board member of the foundation. I'd never been. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I brought the investigator from the state of Georgia's Board of Dentistry with me. And now he's going for the certification program. I'm very proud of, of that effort. Um, but I learned a lot at boot camp. I'm not, I don't know that anybody is ever expert in anything. I think we can always learn something like glasses are not eye protection. You have to have eye protection. And so certain things that, you know, maybe a, I didn't know 30 or 20 or 10 years ago that I now know that we now institute and that people from OSAP and other organizations, in APEC, they out, go out and talk about these things. And I think we need to, put more focus on it. I think OSAP needs to figure out a way to even get bigger than it is. I mean, I think it's, and it's not just the US. I think there's a there's a market for it internationally.
0: I totally agree with you. For our listeners out there, OSAP is the Organization for Safety and Asepsis Prevention. And it is like the APIC of dentistry. So it's the the infection control organization for dentistry. Um, I did want to ask you, I know you said that you're still wearing N95s for aerosol generating procedures. Mm -hmm. In your clinic, what do you consider an aerosol generating procedure? Because I know the CDC definition is a little bit wishy-washy on exactly what that would be in a dental clinic.
2: If you have a high-speed handpiece out, it's an aerosol generating procedure. If you're using every procedure in dental hygiene is an aerosol generating procedure. So they all have high volume evacuation now. And of course, all the other tools, Um, be frankly honest, my staff wears N95s for all procedures because a person could cough, a person could sneeze when we talk. As much as I talk, you know, there's a lot of aerosol <laughs> popping out all over the place. So we understand that. So I, don't, I look at everything as, from a risk perspective for my staff and for my patients. So all precautions are taken. Do I let people use the alternative? Because there is a CDC approved alternative that you could wear a level one to a level three mask and a shield. And yes, if you're doing, our docs are doing just hygiene checks or something of that sort, then in those cases, um, you know, just masking and shielding would be appropriate, but you'd have to have on the gown, you have to foam in before you put on your gloves, foam out when you take off your gloves, Um, old fashioned. So when I walk into a room, I wash my hands. Um, I've just been doing that forever. Uh, The foam is, is evil. I, it's got so much alcohol. I, my face might be looking older. My hands look grandparent hands. I mean, it's like there's only so many times you can put that foam on and off every day. So um, so I do that. Uh, and and um, we have secret shoppers that I sort of greet in the waiting room. And it's another reason I go in the waiting room. Is to get my little secret shoppers. Did hand washing occur? Did they glove appropriately? Did you feel safe during your visit? And actually just having conversations with people. I could have them fill out forms, but having uh, talking to people to me works better. So
1: one question that I have about that is um you know, one of the challenges with N95s is getting everybody fit tested, um, and so I assume with you attached to Grady, you have a mechanism to do that. But not everybody else really has that readily available. Um, so, what do you what do you do in your state or your area to try to get people to wear the N95s that are you know appropriate? They are they are appropriately fit tested for.
2: That is a really good question. I I didn't know we were playing stump the dentist today. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am associated with Grady. Um, So we all are fit tested, but my nephew is also a dentist and my niece is an orthodontist. And they brought in people who do OSHA training that do fit testing to do the fit testing. So usually there is a company or an organization that will do it. They'll charge you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Grady doesn't charge me for that one. Um, but my concern is there were only fit testing on one brand, uh-huh. and that is not the brand that my staff has gotten used to. So I've had to go to bat for my staff and make sure that they can get fit tested for the other brands as well. There was a recall on the other brand. Um, it, it said fluid shield. I'm not going to say the brand, but it said fluid shield, and no N95 is fluid resistant. And so that's why they brought them back. The N95 part functioned fine. And um, there was more room for people that have larger noses in those. And so we were really happy with the other brand, the little duck bill kinds. So um, they are trying to arrange that for me because one of my best friends in the health system is the vice president of infection prevention. So it's not what you know sometimes, it's who you know. And we're part of the same team. She actually is the person who designed my infection control area, not me.
1: Yeah, we're working on trying to get a program going in our state about uh, being able to fit tests throughout the state because it definitely is a challenge once you get out of the the bigger areas in in Nebraska. To uh, uh, you know, and it was obviously very much emphasized in the covid pandemic where you know you had people wearing n95s but you that you know they'd maybe never been fit tested or maybe it had been years and you know you get some facial changes or something so um it's yeah, a challenge I'm,
2: I'm usually facial changes it's all <laughs> i don't know what's happening with that <laughs> but no i think it's really important and there is a difference between big urban settings cuz yeah. i live in one when i got here i would undergraduate here as well at emory when I started, there were like five or six hundred thousand people here. It was less than a million. Now there are six million people here. It's too big. Um, so but in more rural areas in my state, it's the same issue. And yeah. so some people were going to hospitals to get fit tested. They were working out arrangements, they were going to um oh and empl- not empl- not empl- not employee health, but um what was it called? If you Occupational have educational incident- health. Thank you, occupational yes. health of thank you businesses. <laughs> so there there are ways. Like for instance, I have um, one of my one of my partner organizations in the residency. They have to bring somebody in because they're a standalone free dental clinic, and so they actually have to bring people in. But it's Atlanta, so it's easy. Is it is it easy enough to do that in one of the more rural parts of of Georgia? No. And so I think finding equity between rural and urban areas is remarkably important. And I'm a my I hate to say it, it's so weird. I'm from the southeast, I'm from Florida. My favorite part of the country is the Midwest. There's just something about the nature of the people that's kinder. Um, it's more air, it's more room. Um, one of my dearest friends is in Wyoming now. I love her, but I could I wouldn't be able to survive. <laughs> No, Wyoming, when they say Wyoming, tough, I get it. Because you negative know, 40, no. Uh, no. Two feet of snow, no. Uh, you know, if it snows in Atlanta, we go into a panic. But I think that's a, another, when we're talking about health equity, uh, urban versus rural is huge. Um, frontier, huge. We have to notice that there are differences and respect the differences. Don't dislike because there are differences. Find solutions that work for a variety of different people, different education levels, different housing situations, different education, just all the different factors, which makes us who we are. And I think that's special. I think we're very special people. Uh, everybody has something that can make me smile. And as that's a awesome. dentist, that's a good thing. You want to show off your. Although I couldn't show off my smile for almost three years, now I have to go out in the waiting room and show up my son. <laughs> and talk to people or be at a, a lecture in the hallways or something. But it's all about uh, relationships and sharing knowledge. I think that's what's key for our future.
0: I absolutely agree. Uh, what advice would you have for uh, maybe dentists or even medical students that are getting ready to graduate and trying to find their niche?
2: You know, that's that's another good question and a hard question. As I said, I was one-third pre-dent, one-third pre-law, one-third undecided in college. Um, My family said, or people I talked to said, to go into dentistry, there wouldn't be as many hours. They were wrong. Um, (laughs) This came to me. You know, this wasn't something I sought out. But I think that there's you. Everybody has an internal passion. I want to be, and you should do every step you can to become that. And if that means you know getting knocked down on occasion on that path, okay, you get back up and you continue. Um, If you follow, everybody's dreams are their own, and you should be able to follow those dreams, and no one is going to take them away from you. So if your goal is to become A neurosurgeon then do what it takes and put in the hours and it will get you'll get there but you have to really focus on what your dream is my dream was not to become a dentist i had no clue um i didn't i'll be honest i didn't even like dental school the fact i got an award from the alumni association last year was sort of shocking and then i found out a lot of us didn't like dental school so i was okay um but I think when you follow your passion, I know oral surgeons that love their jobs. I know my ID fellows and docs here, they love their jobs. Um, I know the nurse practitioners, the nurses, the medical assistants, you don't have to reach for the stars, you have to reach for what's within you and what you want to do. And if you find that internal happiness and you're going to be successful.
1: Yeah, great great advice. Yeah, terrific advice. What's next for Dr. Resnick?
2: What uh, you got, You've tackled a lot of things.
1: Over I here have a four-year
2: research trial getting ready to start in <laughs> I think I need to go visit our Center for Well-Being. It's one floor <laughs> down. And talk to them about what was I thinking when I said yes. But we're looking at human papillomavirus. That's one of the big issues facing mm-hmm. oral health these days. Number one cause of oropharyngeal cancer now. Um. And looking how, in this patient population, people with HIV, um, looking to see if HPV is detected and then changes on the oral microbiome. So I was on another periodontal disease study with people with HIV uh, and changes to the oral microbiome, and I kept on insisting that I am the dumbest person in the room, but they still need me. And in this case, I'm still, because there's all the geneticists and all these people that are involved and in looking, yeah, I'm just a country dentist doing some probing, doing 20 biopsies and following 500 patients for a couple of years. So, um, but that's, uh, I don't know that that'll be my last because I have MPH, the student coming and we're going to look at oral health related quality of life. There was a Robert Wood Johnson project, clinical scholars project I was involved with called OICan. Oh, and it's an app on a phone that you can have people fill out their oral health related quality of life done in very simple terms, and then have you ever been checked for head and neck cancer and blood pressure, we added a few other things to it, and then see what they do when they first get here, and then check them a year down the road and see what changes there may or may not have been. So that's another thing. Access to care is my big thing. So I, I'm not done yet. Um, people don't think I'll ever retire. I might just explode one day. But, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I will retire one day, but not yet. Um, and not to Wyoming. Not to Wyoming. <laughs> I went into a park in Wyoming where me and my friend Anna were the only people I saw. Yeah. Now you... You're in Atlanta, you you don't, in my neighborhood, I don't have that. I mean, it's just the wide open spaces Um, I have. Like for instance, I have traveled almost every part of Kansas lecturing. I'm amazed at the differences in that state. I finally found out where the green from the Wizard of Oz came from, it's Milo. Who knew? I mean, so you learn different things by going to different places. I also know where the best barbecue is, I'm just saying. That's my bribery. Um, if you if you're good with barbecue, um, then then I come. So that that's my bribery thing. So especially for Kansas and Kansas City and yep. Missouri, barbecue is on the on the menu. In Texas, those those are my favorites so far. Uh, South Carolina is a little different with their mustard stuff, you know. But that that was my goal to try barbecue in every state, and and but I, I settled on one particular place, and that's where I order my rubs from now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and literally, they it was uh, do a, a program on HIV screening as a part of routine dental care, and this was done in 2008 or nine, and they're still doing it, which I'm so very proud of. And didn't know they were still doing it until at the dental conference, one of them came up to me. They bribed me with this particular barbecue, and and I'll go whenever they need <laughs> It doesn't take much. I oh, definitely didn't great. enter this field to make a lot of money. Although if you're at the same job for 30 years, you don't do badly. But I think, like I say, if you follow your passion, you follow your dreams, um, you'll be fine.
0: And follow the barbecue.
2: And follow the barbecue. And then I guess you're first, you start with an electric smoker. Then you go to a pellet grill, which I had two. I might be going for the big, you know, wood stick thing at some point. I'm not sure yet. You know, that maybe I'll have to wait until retirement so I can stay up with it. and Well, with an alarm clock, because I can't stay up past 930 much anymore. But um, so I'm I'm smoking my brisket. I can keep an eye on it.
1: Yeah, well, Omaha is more famous for steak. So if you come up here for the
2: Diana Ross concert, we'll have to tell you where to go get a good steak. Well, you know that, well, yeah, no, I I figured out there's certain areas like, like New England, lobster rolls. yeah. Okay, and clam chowder. I, I, I've got the different parts of the country down, and definitely I know that Omaha's known for steaks. So, yes, I would definitely be at a steak place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but so, I don't
2: think before Guy Ross Conference, I don't want to be that full. It had to be the day before the day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we like to give our guests an opportunity to ask us a question, if you would like.
2: What changes have you noticed in infection prevention in different environments since we're in this COVID lull?
0: Ooh. Rick, do you want to go?
2: This thing isn't over right. as far as I'm concerned. So it's a lull.
0: It's still happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of changes with this uh, downturn in cases uh, in the in the state. Uh, you know, it's been funny, you know, the whole... Uh, dichotomy with everything with the, the COVID pandemic, you know, some not wanting to do anything, some wanting to, uh, you know, do lots of protection and everything else, you know, our, certainly our hospital facilities had done everything we could to keep everybody safe, uh, be it uh, uh, patients, providers, uh, uh, other staff, uh, family members who came to visit, everything else. And so um, that was certainly a big part for 3 years uh i think largely that's scaled back now significantly um most uh, most care is now being done you know without masks um, um patients are we don't have covid units anymore um we have uh you know Patients can be cared for wherever they get diagnosed with COVID, whereas we used to move them to specific units with specific airflow and everything else. We still try to um, reverse the airflow in those rooms. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and there's not as much exposure investigations anymore either. You know, we did a ton of those early on throughout the pandemic, as probably as recently as maybe six, eight months ago. Um but that's kind of uh, changed as well. And I think a lot has changed in the pandemic as well. You know, when, when the first started, there wasn't really any, there wasn't any immunity, there wasn't a vaccine. We didn't understand how it was spread, how it worked, everything else. And then Delta was a different virus than Omicron, different than what we're seeing here more recently. And, you know, with roughly 75% of Americans with some kind of immunity, uh, even if it's not going to last, it's not going to see something. You can still probably generate a little bit of memory if you do get uh, infected. That you know, maybe it won't be quite as bad. At least as what we're hoping. Now, what's going to come up. next? What's that I have follow up?
2: Yeah, say Delta Junior comes back. God forbid. Yeah, where we're seeing a more serious illness. Do you think that we could actually respond? appropriately and in time, considering the differences that arose, you know, with people getting vaccinated, masking versus those that didn't want to get masking and somehow turning into more than a medical scientific issue?
1: I think it'd be really difficult. I I really do. I think You know, a lot of what we focused on during the pandemic was the medical science stuff, which I think was important and we had to learn it and focus on it and everything else. But the psychological science of it, the economic science of it, the other science of this whole thing, I think didn't get as much attention. And I think going forward for whatever our next pandemic is, whether it's another COVID variant or it's a, you know, a pandemic influenza or it's something else, I think we need to not just look specifically at just, well, what's the best thing we can do from a medical standpoint? We got to look at it all because it's much more complicated than shutting down the world. Shutting down the world might have been the right thing to do at that time, but we need to be better prepared so we don't have to shut down the world and we can impact other things. I think, are we there? Could we do it? I don't know. I'm worried that we have a short memory
2: well, it was good that I was able to actually ask a question and be on the other end, because um, <laughs> that was a tough question. It was. And it's I not an I, easy question. It's not an easy question, and I don't know that we have an answer unless somebody really gets online and says, because people you know, didn't understand the differences in how the different variants impacted you, whether it was a lower lung pneumonia or an upper lung issue and things of that sort. So, well, it wasn't that bad. I didn't feel good for five days. You know, well, then there's long COVID as well. So luckily I'm one of those few that must, I got to figure out what my blood type is because apparently I haven't had it. Even though this morning I was pretty sure I had brain fog. I had no idea what was going on this morning. (laughs) I honestly don't know. It's like, dear Lord, I think, wake me up, wake me up. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you all. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. I I hope I didn't disappoint. Oh, no, it
0: was great. It's all great. Fantastic. I always, you know, we find a lot of um, people on the medical side, but I don't often get to interview people on the dental side, which is, you know, my passion. Well, is in the most parts side, of but... the country,
2: I will exclude Washington, D.C., the mouth is connected to the rest of the body. And so, therefore, it really is important. You can't be healthy without oral health. And so I think that's a huge message. A lot of the issues we have are related to inflammation, and a lot of mouth periodontal disease is inflammatory. So we know with diabetes there's an issue. We've seen changes with HIV. So there's a lot of things that that we can do as dentists to help. And believe me, I, I've had I've treated capillary sarcoma with chemotherapy. I freeze off oral warts. Um, I've managed, uh, multi-drug resistant candidiasis. I've done things I would have never expected I was going to do when I left that dental school. And so there really is a way for the professions to be more integrated. And that is really my true final goal. I really want people to be able to talk to each other. That's awesome. And have a conversation like we just did. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank
1: you so much again for joining us. It was a pleasure to get
2: to know you and, and talk to you today. It was a pleasure getting to meet you and getting to see you again. Yes. I'm looking at the right and left sides of the screen. <laughs> I'm honored by this opportunity to have the chit chat, and I hope some of the information proves helpful. I'm sure yes. it will. Thank you again. Thank all
0: you, you take so care. much. Yep, You too. For all of our listeners out there, catch us next time on Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty Underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.